China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Isaac Carden, an assistant professor at the Naval War College. Today we'll be discussing his forthcoming paper, China's Power Position in Global Ports, which is co-authored with Wendy Loitert and is forthcoming from International Security. Isaac, thanks for joining the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Jude. So I wanted to start out by asking uh, about your research interest and how you got to where you are at the Naval War College. How did you get interested in Chinese military, Chinese maritime strategy? So I studied the Middle East in college, actually, and somehow spent an entire uh, undergraduate career focused entirely away from the uh, East Asian questions that now occupy so many of us today. And just through kind of good luck and accident, ultimately, I got exposed to a whole bunch of discussions in John Foster Dulles's paper as well as doing historical thesis down in the uh, bowels of the, the Mud Library at Princeton. I was down looking through to see what he had to say about Eisenhower policy in the Middle East, and there was nothing there. It was almost all redacted, and yet he was talking feverishly about nuking China in the 1950s, and I realized I had almost entirely neglected to understand why that might be, and so I got a chance to travel there. I enjoyed studying the language, and I'd always been interested in international politics, so I just sort of kept on doing one China thing after another, and all of a sudden ended up working here in D.C. at the National Defense University down in Southwest. And uh, yeah, since, since then, I had been focused on issues that have sort of put the United States and China into competition, and maritime disputes was where I landed and studied maritime disputes while I was at Cornell doing my doctorate forthcoming book from Yale University Press, all about China's maritime disputes. And that is what landed me at the Naval War College. I'm at the China Maritime Studies Institute. And true to the name, we're very interested in all things China maritime. And so having done all this research on, on China's maritime disputes, it was, a, it was a natural place for me to be. And so subsequently, I've continued to work on maritime disputes. But as China has expanded its global presence, as I'm sure we'll talk about, our horizons from a research standpoint have also expanded pretty significantly. And so this question of Chinese power projection outside of East Asia is something that the Navy is quite interested in, naturally, and that I think the entire China studies and security studies communities are really trying to to wrestle with. And there's been quite a lot of heavy breathing about Chinese commercial ports, but I hadn't seen anything approaching a, a kind of concrete empirical analysis, even of where they were and what's going on with them, much less of what, what their purposes are, what their functions are. And so I've just sort of pursued this in a bunch of different directions. So let's dig right into it. I wanted to quote from an early sentence in, in the paper, which is coming out, uh, as you told me before we started recording, in the April issue of International Security, the spring 2022 issue, you write, although overseas bases may be sufficient for a state to project offensive military power overseas, we contend they are not necessary. Overseas base possession is not the sole index of state power projection capabilities. So clearly, you're inserting this paper into a debate that is going on. And on the one hand, there's a big focus since the uh, military base in Djibouti opened up of looking at sort of China's ability to create 
install military bases overseas. And that's, I'm assuming, has been one of the metrics by which we've been assessing Chinese power. You're looking at China's ownership of and control of commercial ports. But can you unpack that sentence a little bit? What is the problem with the typical way that we've been assessing power projection? And as a follow-up, could you just walk us through really why ports matter to a state from a, a strategic perspective? Sure. So with those couple sentences, Wendy and I are trying to address both a generic kind of international relations, international security question, and then one much more specific to what we're seeing with China. The first is that you know, we should be thinking more broadly analytically about what what is, in fact, necessary to project power overseas. And there's just sort of an assumption that you have to compare apples to apples. And when we're looking at global military powers, we're going to expect them to resemble, you know, especially the United States, but also European colonial powers before that. And there has tended to be a very overt militarized element to that dedicated military platforms such that you can project offensive military power beyond your shores and out outside of the kind of range of your domestic logistics networks. And so on the one hand, we're just introducing a corrective to that. In a way, it's kind of a throwback to an earlier era. Those familiar with Dutch or British East India companies will know that, you know, that the marriages of convenience between firms and states and militaries and privateers, et cetera, are nothing, nothing new entirely. But I think in the modern era, some part of that had been lost. The Second piece of that, as in ports and specifically Chinese ports, is really what drew me to this project. And it really was the just basic, crude, simple observation of you have Chinese firms that are very, very active in this sector. All of a sudden, starting around 2000, uh, a small handful of Chinese firms started very aggressively acquiring stakes in and operating facilities all around the world. And just over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of attention here in Washington, about a handful of those facilities, some of which are in the Indian Ocean and had been accompanied by this, this string of pearls discussion, et cetera. And what we wanted to do and what we continue to do at the China Maritime Studies Institute and what Wendy and I do at this paper is to think about what is actually empirically, observably happening at these facilities. To what extent is it appropriate to think about these commercial ports as, in fact, dual-use facilities. And one thing to say, just as a general matter, is taking this question of are they commercial or are they strategic, which we often hear, I like to answer yes. They are, in fact, commercial and strategic strong points is one of the terms that Chinese analysts, uh, particularly PLA and PLA-adjacent institutes, describe them as. And ultimately, the reason for that is China's broader maritime strategy, which I guess is what I'd say we, we generally work on, has as its centerpiece this idea that China has major economic and commercial interests around the globe. And I'd say especially, as we emphasize in this paper, especially across the Indian Ocean and into the Persian Gulf, to East Africa, up through Suez and into the Med. These are both China's biggest sources of commodity imports, oil and gas people will be familiar with, but especially minerals from Africa and a variety of other inputs that are not available in China. And perhaps equally so, these are their priority export markets. Europe continues to be China's biggest export market. So they look at ports as being essential to China's overall economic health. And naturally, as you become more and more dependent on inputs and outputs, 
that traverse these maritime sea lanes, there's sort of a security component to it. And so we've seen this evolve over time, and the strategy essentially relies upon having secure sea lines to and from these major export markets, and I'd probably more importantly, these major commodity resource inputs. Within that, though, of, has there been discussion of ports as components of China's military power? Yes. So that strategic strongpoint concept is one that we don't do that much with in this paper per se, but have, we've looked at a China Maritime Studies Institute. And ultimately, the PLA is not in a position to dictate Beijing, central civilian leadership's choices about whether and when and how it can acquire bases overseas. That's not something that they can necessarily just wave a wand and accomplish. And what we see is that the PLA, of course, operationally, especially the PLA Navy, is tasked with a variety of missions that require it to operate out of areas, you'd say, out beyond the reach of China's domestic sort of bases and logistics lines. And lacking a network of overseas bases, having just this one base at Djibouti, they've had to come up with some creative solutions of how to do this. And basically, this strategic strongpoint concept is not really a term of art in the, you know, it's not in the PLA dictionary. It hasn't been defined formally anywhere, but it's used quite extensively in the PLA literature. It's even used in the 13th five-year plan and in discussion of its, the economic functions of ports in particular. The idea is this is a, a, a node that concentrates Chinese economic and political and diplomatic and ultimately military presence in a particular region of the world. You'd asked about just sort of the functions of ports, and it is, it is in the nature of ocean ports that there's some intrinsic dual-use capability. A Navy ship has some particular requirements that are not going to be met at most commercial ports. They certainly uh, are not going to be able to load munitions at the port of Long Beach, and they're not necessarily going to have you know, specialized parts or technicians or some power and fuel requirements that they need. But ultimately, virtually any ship, any Navy ship can stop at virtually any commercial port and deal with basic things like replenishment, resupply. Interestingly enough, getting sailors off the ship and letting them walk around is also essentially a, a mission requirement. So there are a lot of reasons why ports are already uh, kind of a part of the Navy's repertoire. U.S. Navy and any other global Navy uses commercial facilities extensively. What's different in the Chinese case is that Chinese firms own and operate the facilities that they prefer to go to. And there is this extensive discussion going on, both in PLA discussions, as well as in industry discussions about how do we better integrate these functions. Industry is enthusiastic about essentially doing the right thing politically, and there is a pretty clear signal out there that they're supposed to support the PLA's ability to operate abroad. And similarly, the PLA has these missions to protect Chinese commerce. And so there's a, there's a natural confluence of interest here, and that's some of the material that we're really diving into to try and understand how ports are used both by the military as well as by commercial entities. I want to rewind the clock a little bit. In, in a minute, I want to ask you if we can actually sort of look at a few of these ports just to understand the various actors. I think one of the things that would be helpful to hear about is disentangling a sort of a unitary state model here to understand how uh, state-owned enterprises, you know, some of these big, these big shipping and, and port management companies and the PLA and the central government and provincial authorities, how does this stew all come together in, in an operational sense at a port? 
But maybe before we do that, can can you give us a broad brush overview of China's port expansion strategy over the past couple decades? Are there various surge phases where we've really seen this move ahead? And who are the dominant actors here? And as a final question, has the intermingling of commercial and strategic military interests been a constant throughout the past couple de- decades of, of port expansion, or is that a more recent phenomenon? So just the basic chronology is Chinese firms getting into the global terminal market, and there are sort of unit of, unit of analysis is individual port terminals. A big port like a Rotterdam or a Long Beach will have dozens of individual terminals, and that's that's ultimately the you know, that's the basic organizational principle in the industry, too. They're, they're going to be the ones who own and operate all the equipment and actually move the cargo. So Chinese firms were basically not in this market at all until the turn of the century. And as your listeners probably know, turn of the century is also the time of pretty dramatic changes in China's overall posture with respect to global trade, especially. A bunch of different things going on there, beginning with the go out, so strategy. Can you unpack the, the go out strategy just for folks who aren't familiar with it? Jiang Zemin in 1999 announced that this is a new priority for Chinese firms. There are a lot of reasons why it seemed like the appropriate thing to do based on their development strategy then. I'd actually suspect you, you'll have quite a lot more insight into that than, than I will as an international security sort of analyst. But ultimately what this meant was Chinese firms were incentivized, both financially as well as politically, to seek out projects overseas, to seek out in particular positions in in vital commodity imports. We saw a lot of uh, equity oil, as they used to call it back then, and a variety of other sort of functional components of the Chinese economic system that were either not available in China or not available at scale. And it was sort of part of the commercialization, I believe, of a lot of these state-owned enterprises that had evolved out of government ministries, et cetera, and had not been uh, competitive in global markets. And this is very much the beginning of the process that we now talk about as the Belt and Road. To me, having read as much as I possibly can on the Belt and Road, only a little bit facetiously would say, I still have no idea what it is. I see it as part of this continuous set of political economic incentives that have grown out essentially of the Chinese political economic model. So rewinding back to what's happening there at the turn of the century, along with many other Chinese enterprises, a handful of these big conglomerates that do pretty extensive international trade and manufacturing and finance or sort of these vertically integrated firms operating in in the trade industry recognize that ownership and operations of port terminals is a good way to increase and ultimately control trade flows and was very much in keeping with this go out strategy. And so the biggest kind of lumpy date I have in my data looking here in front of me is acquisition of nine separate terminals in 2001. And one notable one there would have been Costco, the central state-owned enterprise. China shipping is one component of it and Costco. And I should say that's C-O-S-C-O, not C-O-S-T, not the place I go get my 50-pound gallons of mayonnaise on the weekend. That's right. Although interestingly, Probably those 50-pound gallons of mayonnaise and other things probably showed up in a Costco container at, at, a, at a port near you. But at any rate, yes, Costco, C-O-S-C-O, all caps, is a gigantic central state-owned enterprise, a big conglomerate that does just about everything 
in maritime transport and logistics. And that happens to be their coming out party in terms of expanding beyond the Chinese domestic market. And it bears noting that at this point, one of the motivations back in 2000, the same as it was in 2013 when they announced the Belt and Road, is that these firms had achieved such domestic scale that they kind of had overcapacity, as it were, have excess capital, excess labor, and are basically raring to go to find markets for expansion. I think Costco is a good example of that. They had enjoyed a domestic monopoly on shipping. They had much more better associated as a shipping firm rather than a port operator. But ultimately, they, like some of their compatriots rather than competitors, I would say, in the Chinese domestic market, have recognized that there are advantages to scale and there are advantages to vertical integration. So we see a big surge then. And then moving forward, as I mentioned, there's renewed interest in getting involved in overseas infrastructure in particular that kicks off with the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. And so we see a couple big surges starting in 2013. And in fact, a majority of what we now count as 96 ports at which Chinese firms own or operate at least one terminal, a majority of those have come since uh, 2013. If we were sitting in a room at Costco or SAFE, if they're thinking about, you know, giving them some FX to go out and make these acquisitions, is the discussion in 2001, 2, 3, 4 incorporate security dynamics or is this primarily a commercial trade? As you say, we've got lots of capital sitting on the books that we want to do something with. Zhang Zemin has told us we need to sort of get out and be big commercial international actors. So what is the mix of sort of ec economics and security in, in this sort of first wave in the, in the early to mid-2000s of port expansion? Sure. Well, I would sure like to know what it would be like to sit down uh, with Costco and have that discussion, frankly. I have had a comparable discussion with folks at China Merchants Port in Hong Kong not so long ago, and I would say there's not didn't expect, nor did I receive a great deal of candor on how these, say, competing interests are weighed. But I guess first thing I would say on that is it, it depends who you're talking to at Costco. If you're talking to the subsidiary of Costco that owns and operates ports, which is to say Costco shipping ports, and they have some, they have even uh, lower level subsidiaries that will own, a, uh, own the company or typically a joint venture that in fact, operates a, a terminal facility, I suspect they have almost no visibility into these bigger political issues. As folks in the industry will tell you, Costco is extremely professional and extremely commercial and has high-tech gear and has world-class managers and just so happens that they can drive down prices for everyone else and outbid everyone in part due to scale, in part due to state support, and perhaps in part due to some kind of vertical integration advantages that allow them to take on loss leaders. A lot, of, a lot of theories in the industry about what's going on. But I think ultimately there's a set of decisions being made above that subsidiary level. When I spoke to China Merchants Ports, so they're the counterpart of Costco subsidiary under this big firm, their sincere impression was there were decisions that were made at the group level, the senior management level. These are the people, and this gets to some of the mechanisms that we talk about in our paper, the senior executives who are appointed by SASAC, by the State Assets Supervision Administration Commission. Which just say that that's the regulator and owner of, of state-owned enterprises, right. Right? So, right? so when you get up to the group level where you have very senior, effectively, politicians who 
are also the, the lead managers and executives for these firms, they are weighing a much more complex set of considerations when they're making decisions about how to allocate firm assets and resources. And so I suspect at the turn of the century, as well as again in another episode in 2013, whether it was because the writing was on the wall or there was some memo pushed out or there was some explicit conversation, I can't say for sure, but you can see very clearly in the behavior that these firms got the message and started very aggressively moving into a bunch of markets that they hadn't necessarily been in before. And it bears noting that in addition to the Belt and Road, we have in parallel, starting in 2012 at the 18th Party Congress, you have a maritime power, a Haiyang Changguo program also in effect. And I think these are, are essentially complementary and they, they have some overlapping strands, but ultimately developing China's power in maritime industry just to say, not naval power per se, but in shipping and shipbuilding and ports and all these things that we see Chinese firms now in major roles also became a big priority. So I think the message came through loud and clear to a Costco, to a China merchants port, to a lesser degree, but also to a significant degree to a range of private firms and certainly to provincial or local state-owned enterprises that this is good business. Whether or not this individual port is necessarily going to goose your revenues that much, you're advancing a set of political objectives. And I think, you know, this is a much longer discussion to figure out exactly how that is engineered uh, in Beijing or in a provincial capital. But ultimately, I think it's pretty clear behaviorally that firms got the message. Let's now fast forward to the kind of heart of your paper. Let me just ask you simply, can you, I mean, what is the main argument that you, you and Wendy put forward here? So the big argument is that as you sort of telegraphed up front that we're missing the boat, as it were, if we're thinking solely about are all these commercial ports becoming bases and that's going to be the way that the, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is going to become a, a world-class military, as they say. And what we're trying to do is, is hold everyone up and kind of change the analytical frame and say, what do we actually see by way of Chinese power projection from this existing network? And what I would say is, we shouldn't be waiting around wondering if this or that port is going to eventually become a military base. That is essentially the story at Djibouti. There was a, a project by China Merchants Port to develop a commercial port. And a couple of years later, they said, oh, by the way, we're also building a military base next door. And that, I think, either explicitly or implicitly has become people's model of what's going on, this kind of creeping militarization, say. And we're trying to introduce a kind of cold glass of water or a splash of ocean water in, in people's face on this and say, look, they're already projecting power from commercial facilities. And I guess a secondary takeaway, but one that shouldn't be downplayed, is that the type of power that the PLA, and we're thinking particularly about the PLA Navy in this paper, which is really the, the expeditionary service in the Chinese military, the type of power that they've been able to generate from this and that they will plausibly be able to generate from this network of commercial facilities does not necessarily have that kind of high-end combat potential that we tend to think about when we talk about power projection overseas. The observable uses and the likely future uses of this commercial dual-use network are in peacetime logistics and intelligence. And these are not at all trivial elements of power projection. Ultimately, they're fundamental parts of higher-end, say, wartime power projection, but for a variety of reasons, these are the priority missions for the PLA. And this gets back to that initial 
discussion about, you know, is the purpose of this commercial or strategic and the fact of it being that these are fused objectives. Ultimately, the PLA's primary missions have to do with protecting overseas interests, as they say. Uh, that means that the first thing that they need to do and that they need to figure out is figure out a way to protect the citizens, the assets, the flows, especially the maritime flows along sea lines of communication of these vital inputs. And so it stands to reason that at least the first and foreseeable set of missions that they're going to be able to perform overseas fit more neatly into kind of this, I guess, sort of unfamiliar set of military missions. It's not the, are you going to invade a foreign country and take it over? So the type of power projection that we are watching here is something that doesn't usually get picked up by our analytical sensors, but that as far as Chinese strategy overseas is concerned, is really the priority set of missions. So, so in a sense, we're focused on China's ability to sort of bolt from the blue, sort of massive military strikes. But what you're arguing here is just even in peacetime logistics, that's giving China some pretty significant power projection capabilities. So I wanted to ask, so a PLAN destroyer pulls into Port Alexandria in, in Egypt. What can they do there and distinguish that from a U.S. destroyer pulling into a commercial port somewhere else? So Alexandria is an interesting case because that's one of nine that we observed where the PLA's daily reported that the ship did a technical stop and Jishu Tinkao. And that is, has not elaborated in the report, but we know that that Alexandria facility has a shipyard that, incidentally, the Soviet Navy built back in the 60s and 70s and operated. And the fact that they report on that and describe it as a technical stop, unlike the many other places where they tend to talk about just resupply, replenishment, maybe some, some diplomatic efforts, tells us that there is an increasing sophistication to what the PLA is doing at these locations. And the way that this differs, say, from a U.S. Navy ship making a stop at a commercial port is that when a U.S. Navy vessel shows up abroad, they are not going to a terminal that's owned or operated by the U.S. Navy, much less by a U.S. firm. And there is a possibility that you could have a long-term relationship with that firm and have negotiated something in advance, but ultimately you are buying a commercial husbanding service on an open market. And what we see in the discussion in Chinese industry and in parallel with these PLA sources is that they're looking to develop much higher levels of integration. There's a discussion about how exactly do you, quote, embed the military and the civilian and use these advantages that Chinese firms have built up in terms of their relationships, in terms of their assets, in terms of their infrastructure, such that the military doesn't need to reinvent the wheel when they show up in Alexandria. They know exactly what's there. They've been there before, probably. They may even have some PLA personnel embedded there to help facilitate their port call. And ultimately, this is kind of a, a way to exploit this existing network of assets. And this comes back to some of your earlier questions about you know how to understand this sequence. And as best we can tell, I don't think that these commercial firms were put out there explicitly in order to provide a platform for the PLA Navy so much as by virtue of Chinese firms and assets and citizens and interests being so concentrated abroad, these became the 
the objects of the PLA's missions and its requirements for security, and they became the available set of assets for them to use to provide that security. And as I said, commercial port's a pretty useful thing for a Navy. So how could we think about the outer bounds of, of what the PLA could do at one of these commercial ports? As you say, we're, there's no, as far as I can tell, imminent plan for a sort of wartime contingency, but just for, for the sake of the conversation, let, let's imagine that there are um, how might they be utilizing these sort of civilian commercial ports? We can observe just in their open reporting on port calls some of the basic things that they're doing. As I mentioned, at Alexandria, that's one of nine places that they've announced technical stops. I should clarify, that's one of nine Chinese-owned and operated facilities that they've announced technical stops. There are a handful of others where they've announced that that are not owned or operated by Chinese firms. And that's, that's sort of a separate question of how how you differentiate between what service you can get out of one versus the other. But ultimately, in order to sustain a fleet well beyond their logistics lines at home, they're going to need to be able to kind of sustain their supplies and stores and personnel. And if they are going to be involved in a combat mission, they're going to need to load munitions. They're going to need to have some sort of sort of command and control linkage back to Beijing, which apparently is the way that they want to command and control out of area operations, as best we can tell, and a variety of other. As you go further up the chain of complex and sophisticated military communications and operations, it becomes harder and harder to see how you properly sustain it from commercial facilities. But what you can do is maintain a consistent global presence abroad. And I think that ultimately is the, uh, the operational objective that we're watching being developed out of commercial facilities. And I guess it's worth noting here that there's a separate line of effort that we've been observing and that you and some of your colleagues have written about here to develop dedicated military facilities. And I think it's not coincidental that two of those sort of likely bases are not in this list of 96 ports that are owned and operated by Chinese firms. That is to say, at Cambodia, at Reem, and uh, over in the Atlantic coast of Africa and Equatorial Guinea at Bata. And I think that's actually pretty telling in the sense that these, these are separate lines of effort. Those are kind of opportunities that the PLA, as opposed to Chinese firms, are exploiting to use facilities in countries that are particularly receptive to some of the Chinese requests and that may be more easily persuaded, say, that there's something in it for them, even if there are some consequences to letting the PLA Navy operate there overtly and have their own dedicated facilities. So it is clear that the PLA knows that there are some requirements that it's not going to be able to meet out of its commercial facilities. But equally, we see that there are quite a number of them, and, and I would argue the kind of mainstream and the, and the, the majority of the operational tasks that they're called upon to do, they can support pretty successfully from this commercial network. So I wanted to ask how then this should shape our picture of some of these state-owned enterprises, because you know we've seen over the past decade or so, I, I think a clear awareness of international regulators that the demarcations between commercial and strategic or commercial military are not as clear in the Chinese context as we thought. And then you have programs like military civil fusion, which further blur the waters. How do you think about disaggregating these various actors? Because on the one hand, you could have an extreme interpretation of this, which is really these are all one blob, right? With each 
constituent unit playing its own part. Sure, as you say, maybe the subsidiary of Yentai Port Group in some port facility somewhere doesn't have, isn't getting the readout on the big top line strategic picture. But nonetheless, you know, these are all own subsidiaries of central SOEs, which are more in the know about the overall strategic picture. The interoperability between, you know, the PLAN and these port facilities is growing. How should we think about this? Because it does seem like the trend line is such that there is going to be even greater syncopation between party, state, military, commercial. Is the distinction still useful and important and important for how we should think about this? Or are we headed in a trend where we need to now just start thinking about sort of, you know, PLA Inc. as a global entity, which is able to draw on in extra legal, in, in ways where, you know, there's no room for pushback by the Shenzhen Yantai port group to anything. So this is one just sort of blob of strategic resources that Beijing can use on a global scale. Well, I, I certainly think we can do better than just the, the blob approach here. I know that's a risky thing to say here in DC, the home of the blob. And I know you've done some very sophisticated work on this. I'm, wa- I'm wary of, of speaking out of school, but I guess for me, the relevant unit is probably not the PLA, but maybe just kind of crudely China Inc. And that, I think, analytically gives us something more to work with. And I mean that almost literally, like a corporatist idea of what's going on. And that's why at the Yentai Port Group in Shenzhen, why they're not going to have a lot of visibility on this. But ultimately, their resources, their options are constrained by being in this broader hierarchical structure. I don't think it's the case that the PLA is sort of directly commandeering resources from commercial firms, although according to Chinese domestic law, they can do so under certain defined circumstances if they're mobilized in a national emergency, et cetera. But it's more like you have at the top of this corporate entity, which is to say central party state leadership, the ability to designate which of these port facilities is going to have to, at some cost to themselves, maintain certain facilities, except the fact that they're going to have to use peer space for non-commercial uses some of the time. And ultimately, it's this kind of corporate mentality that I think, to me, helps me understand these relationships best. This does necessarily confound our ability to from an international regulatory standpoint, as you pointed out, sanction these firms or figure out ways to to diminish their access to some of these markets because at that lower level, the, the operational firm that's acquiring a stake or a concession in a terminal, it's going to be very hard for a regulator to make to make these inferences and to see them in concrete terms. I'd like to think that some of the arguments in this paper will help help make sense of that. But ultimately, I think it's just very, very difficult to disaggregate the commercial versus the strategic motivations. I think at a fundamental level, there's kind of there's kind of a unity and the way that that kind of manifests in practice varies by sector. And I think we could have a, a, a similar conversation in certain other industries. It just so happens in the maritime transportation sector, the functionality is more or less the same for commercial and strategic purposes. I mentioned commercial ports pretty useful for a Navy ship. A naval base, somewhat less useful for for commercial shipping, if if useful at all. And so from the standpoint of the firm, this is a pretty good investment. You get dual uses out of it. You can 
you can assign these assets to be used for other purposes. And to the extent that the PLA is, you know, the armed subsidiary of this entity, then, you know, they're the beneficiary of some of these corporate resources. Final question, and both zooming out and moving in a horizontal direction, I wanted to ask you about how you think about the PLA as a global entity now. And the proximate reason for the question is you mentioned Equatorial Guinea, and I remember when the Wall Street Journal piece came out that there was this frantic attempt by the administration here to get Equatorial Guinea to, to back away from this, if, if indeed, I mean, they, they denied that they were moving forward with it. But nonetheless, when I first heard the news of Chinese military facility in the Atlantic, you know, we can look out here from the East Coast and see it. That's quite worrying. But, but the, the, then that was immediately followed to me by the thought of, well, where would I be comfortable with the PLA operating? And this, I feel like, is a hard challenge for us in thinking about China it is, you know, the PLA is a global military force. And the question of either has to be, well, we're not comfortable with them anywhere, and so we're going to push back everywhere. Or maybe a harder question is, we're going to prioritize where we are uncomfortable with them operating, which means necessarily there are areas where we will maybe begrudgingly, but nonetheless, permit China to expand its military influence and power projection capabilities. How do you think about that and either at a personal level or just at an analytical level of a summary of where the the discussion is because it seems right now there's really nowhere china could go where we're, we don't feel like it's an existential threat i'm exaggerating of course but only slightly so i think that it's going to be an impossible game of global whack-a-mole if the expectation is you're going to be able to shut down everywhere that the pla is going to go to sustain its operations abroad. Just the simple fact that they're able to sustain at least peacetime operations out of these commercial facilities, I think should go a long way towards indicating there's really no way to, to, to push this toothpaste back in the tube. The PLA is a global military, and the PLA Navy in particular is a blue water Navy. But what they don't have abroad and what they wouldn't have accomplished solely by having, say, a base at Bataan, Equatorial Guinea, is having high-end combat capabilities such that they would want to fight the U.S. Navy in the Atlantic. That's not a near or a medium-term future that we necessarily have to worry about. And uh, it's above my pay grade to, to think in the super long term. And of course, that is something that's, that's conceivable, but I think not along this trajectory. Something dramatic would have to change. You know, the United States global base network is not something that kind of slowly accreted because of our overseas commercial interests. This arose from fighting wars abroad. And unless and until China ends up doing that, I don't see them making that essentially phase change to the types of capability that they're going to generate from it. And so with that in mind, you know, I think we're going to need to be sanguine with a growing presence, certainly, of the PLA abroad. And if it's not Equatorial Guinea, it'll be somewhere else. And you know, maybe... Maybe uh, it's possible to introduce incentives and counter incentives to these various countries such that they are going to think twice. I think it's too soon to say what's going to happen in Bata. It's too soon to say what's going to happen in the UAE, another place where there was reporting, again, from the Wall Street Journal about advanced PLA negotiations for access. And, you know, I think, I think to the extent that there is a, a list that you can count on one hand, yeah, maybe 
the U.S. can send the, the national security advisor out to all these places and try and make, make the case. But I think at some point, the scale of the Chinese enterprise and the scale of their interest in having the PLA abroad is such that, again, it'll be a global game of whack-a-mole. And what kind of requires from us is this acme of strategy, which is to say making, making choices about how, how, how important things are and how you're going to use your scarce resources. And so I think that we are in a much stronger position than they are if it's a competition to project significant combat power into the Gulf, for example. And it will continue to be that way even if the Chinese succeed in establishing some sort of a PLA facility in the UAE. That may be one of those cases, the UAE, where we've decided, you know, it's worth it for us to, to go to the wall on this and we're going to have a fight with our very close security partner, the UAE, over this, which is evidently what happened. And it's not clear where that one's going either. So, you know, I, th I, think, I think we need to, to take a look at various theaters and decide whether this is happening among the combatant commands, whether this is happening in the National Security Council, decide which of these is, priority theater, is a priority theater for us that we cannot allow China to establish a more significant military foothold. If the answer to that is the Indo-Pacific, I think we're going to be very disappointed. The scale is such that it's just too large a space. And if it's not one of these many facilities that we're talking about here, it's one that is just a, a twinkle in a Costco uh, manager's eye right now. There are many, many nations across the Indo-Pacific and China has a lot of incentives and disincentives that they can confront them with. And I think ultimately, you know, we're not in a position to keep the PLA from being global, but I think we can, you know, focus our interests on priority areas. And if we think of the Gulf, say, as one, or we think of the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal, then maybe we have a fighting chance of, of limiting and constraining and shaping the type of global power projection that we see from the PLA. Isaac Carden, the Naval War College, thank you very much. If folks haven't found a reason already to subscribe to International Security, the, the spring 2022 issue is a, is a good reason to start. And I should note, International Security being a very affordable uh, journal by relative comparison. So this is a great paper, not only for understanding China's maritime strategy, but actually I thought it was a really great paper for understanding the mechanics of the party state apparatus and how it interacts and intersects with commercial and military elements. So this is just for political scientists looking at China. I think this is a, a really uh, important paper. So Isaac, thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 